Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson and uh, guest, as is traditional in this podcast, uh, who are you? Oh, that's the question. That was All right. the question. Okay, because you said there would be a question that I would know how to answer. Yes. And you're right. Actually, okay, do I know how? Who am I? I don't like to warn people that I'm going to ask them who they are because it feels like as you've just done there. Like people feel like yeah. it's a trick question and I feel like if I tell people that that's what I'm going to ask, then they kind of... Yeah, but you didn't ask what do I do. You asked well, who am I? Well, I think that how you answer this question says a lot about you and that's okay. why it's an interesting question. Well, see, now you've really dialed up the expectations of the <laughs> profundity of this bloody response, haven't you? Because if I just say I'm a journalist-ish, then you know, that doesn't cover it. Okay, so I am a 42-year-old woman who lives in Sydney mm-hmm. and I have three children and I have several jobs, some of which are sensible and some of which are less sensible. I'm a journalist. Um, I have a TV show where I cook with politicians. Uh, I'm a writer and I do the other bits and bobs that escape me just now. But All that's right. kind of, that's the, that's the sole effect. That's so firstly, the... that, that seems like a lot of things. Yes. Like you seem like you are a busy person. Would you, would you describe yourself as a busy person? Yes. But, I mean, a lot of my busyness is more visible than other people's busyness. Like, I don't think that I'm the busiest person I know. It's just that a lot of the evidence of me being busy is, uh, is, is more broadly visible right. than busy. most other people's busyness. Yeah. And also, I've got the um, – I've worked out a, little, a slight trick about modern media, which is that if you're busy on several different platforms at once, it enhances your busyness. Like you can be at home in your jammies and people are like, oh, I heard you once on the radio and I read something that you wrote and then I saw you on the television. You must be doing all three of those things all the time. So you must be really busy and you think, <laughs> I'm in my jammies right now. Right. Now, uh, how much of your work is from home? Because that's interesting to me already. Mm. Like is that idea of like workspace? Because I'm a person, we're here in the uh, CJZ offices, uh, yes. CJZ of the people. We are in the room with the barred windows. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, it does actually look, I mean, this is an editing bay. Uh, it actually seems like a panic room to me, but that's it, okay. I mean, I think probably Andrew used to have a panic room. <laughs> I imagine that Andrew Denton had a panic room and now that he's pay left, money to see that. they've turned it into an editing room. <laughs> I noticed that his office, like his corner office now has like eight people working in it. <laughs> they were like, we're getting rid of Andrew we're going to move eight people into his office. And what did they do with all these specific purpose furnishings, you know? Well, I mean, I imagine he took them with yes, him, of right? Yes, Because, I mean, he can't get those all remade Pain dungeon again. in his own place, in his, <laughs> in, in his personal life. Yes, quite. No. I really like that old story about... Um, uh, Kevin Rudd, when he became Prime Minister, bringing back um, Bob Hawke's old um, chairs for the Prime Ministerial suite. Oh, they, I didn't they know love that. To, yeah, they love to re, um, recycle between themselves. This is the chair that Hawkey sat in. I know, but that, I thought there'd be some hygiene issues Gross. there. <laughs> I mean, you'd at least... You'd, God knows what that furniture was used for in the Hawke era. You'd want to mop it down. Like, that's what I thought, yeah. I mean, Bob... I mean, yeah, yeah, Bob. I mean, Bob, Bob was our Clinton. Bob. You imagine <laughs> he that Bob still was, is. Yeah, you imagine that Bob was doing more than Clinton was. He that just was got away with it, office. right? You would be looking for a, yeah. And he was famous for also, you wouldn't take in one of those CSI black lights, put it that way. No. And you'd also, he was famous for answering the door naked, I believe, Bob Hawke. That was a bit of a, like a piece of his, right? Is that yeah. a, Is that true or is that apocryphal? Well, I, I do know people have you heard who have, um, but they were people who worked with him. I think he was right. sort of 
he was very comfortable it wasn't like a in his own thing. skin. It wasn't really a kind of door knocking in his right. seat kind of sure. uh, arrangement, <laughs> as far as I know. What I loved, uh, anyway, we can't, we, we cannot spend this whole thing talking about Bob Hawke. Okay. This would just be ridiculous. But but when I get um, in here, money, he'll talk about you the whole time. <laughs> that, that, uh, that is what I expect. Yep. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think you'll talk about Hawkey, actually. That's what normally happens. Um, but he uh, was also so madly into racehorses. And I just remember talking to Craig Emerson, who used to be his staffer, and he talked about the sort of prime ministerial day that would involve an actually quite significant time set aside for just getting across the form for um for Saturday and just like getting the bets on and everything. Now, is and, this, are you talking in a briefing? Like, is this him just personally doing his own work or has he got a committee together? Is, is he getting briefed well, on Craig, the races? Well, Craig, who was an economist, yeah. when he came on staff, said that that was one of the most urgent things he had to get across is like how to, you know. And Barry Cassidy, who was a press secretary for Hawke, I think... I think it's Baz that's got a story about accidentally leaving the best bets, like the magazine with all of the info in it, behind one day. And like that was his one job to really, um, A, manage the relationship between the Prime Minister and the press of this country, but more importantly, be the guy who remembers the um, the best bets magazine so that the Prime Minister can get a, get a bet on. Wasn't it good anyway. when our Prime Ministers were into races and not racism? But it's, yeah. uh, it's a different... See, there you go. You see, you've got a really... You're doing a Gruen thing. You just did a Gruen thing just then where we're having a conversation. You've gone, okay, time to wrap this up and move on. And have you noticed that you have this capacity <laughs> to wrap something up with a witticism? Like that's – so you've just gone a pun Don't. and you've gone edit point and now we're moving on to something else. Now, I, I think that's a very sensible decision, but it's a real skill of yours. It's You've just told everybody the secret, though, Annabelle. Sorry. And I'm, and I'm not sure that – I may have to kill you after this. <laughs> Patent it right now. <laughs> Finally, somebody's seen through but what do you, I do. But, but that's exactly – I mean, I say we say it with the show, and, I mean, uh, <laughs> people will get pissed off now because I'll tell you some feedback I get about this podcast. Right. People hate when I talk. It's my podcast. <laughs> it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm just going to shut up for people a couple get, of minutes. They're like, I, no, people are like, oh, no, no. you. It, it's not an interview podcast. This is no. a conversation. Sure. So, um, uh, one of the things that we do with Gruen is we never put jokes into the show when we're making right. the show. Mm-hmm. So our, our our idea is that the jokes are the icing on the cake yep. and I use jokes to finish a conversation yeah. and move on to something else. Yeah. So when we actually have our first script, there's literally nothing yep. in there and we have a rule in the office is we never leave in something just because we think it's funny. Right. Like it has to have a purpose for the show. And then, yes, I literally use the jokes to end a conversation but and move on do you do that in your else. private life as well? Like you're having a conversation with like your mum or something and you're and <laughs> – <laughs> just like what bust a sweet pun on dad yeah. and then yeah, just, just move like, on. That's it. Anyway, enough about Christmas, mum. <laughs> You're being wound up by your son. No, anyway, no, only in a, I guess. Right. Yeah, I guess it's like that's interesting though. You're the first person who has ever noticed that that's what I do. I've never had huh. anybody specifically point out, "Hey, this is what you do." But oh, yes, I notice it, it all the time. But that's I've you know worked on Gruen Nation with you, and I I spend most of that recording time just watching and thinking how does he do that because it's good it's a real timing thing but i guess that's what you do so yeah Uh, interesting uh when you uh, talk about television because you let's talk about the television program actually let's do this first okay Uh, do you have a philosophy um you you were kind enough to um advise me of that question about an hour and a half ago so i've had look plenty of time to come up with a, um, a I don't, comprehensive I don't like people to world. think too long about no, it because I, I feel like... No, I haven't too much really no. either. Um, and I think, do you know, as 
I'm not a big planner and I'm not a big, um, I'm not massively into extended reflection, but I think if I probably have, if I have a broad guiding philosophy uh, in life and increasingly I think in work, it is probably that it's all things being equal, it's best to err on the side of generosity. That's about probably the closest thing to a guiding principle that I have. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. I like it. It's a really fun like you know, thing to say, but give me a practical example of what you mean by that. Well, I, I think that life is a bit too short to create um, animosities where there aren't any. Uh-huh. And I also think that... Um, if you're generous to people, you get different stuff back from them. I've tried it like a different, a number of different ways, like as a journalist. Sorry, I should rephrase that. That sounds weird. Um, well, I'd but- like to hope that you've tried it a number of different ways <laughs> in all aspects of your life, Annabelle. You seem to me like the sort of person who's tried it a number of different ways. And I mean in general. I don't mean anything specifically. But I feel like you'd be the sort of, you know, you have an open mind, I would think. Is that a true thing to say? Yeah. yeah. In fact, I think I have um, probably an unproductively open mind. Okay. Um, because... Like people sometimes ask me, you know, would you ever go into politics? And there's just no way I would because I cannot um, arrive at a position of kind of um, extreme conviction on a vexed issue without having doubts about, you know, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong about it, you know. So I don't think I would ever be able to prosecute a particular um, ideology or angle to the exclusion of the possibility of um, anything conflicting being possible, you know. But, so, but, but tell me about that because that's really interesting to me because, like, people ask me if I would yeah. ever go into politics and the answer is, look, the shit alone that I've talked about on stage and on the podcast <laughs> would disqualify me and you don't know the stuff I'm hiding. No, like, <laughs> you'd be the ultimate open book candidate. Oh, yeah. my God. But it, it's one of those things where I'm exactly like you that I believe life is, you know, increasingly, you know, shades of grey as you get mm. older. I find it very hard to find, you know, one position on anything you know everything comes with baggage everything has an opportunity cost but the opposite of that is and let's talk about politics in this regard is Mm. is not one of the faults with our system that we have a thing that on one side and the other people are prosecuting these like absolute ideas when the truth of it is that most things are somewhere gray in between I, i i absolutely believe that and you know i am a massive fan of democracy. I'm like, you know, that sounds like an incredibly twee thing to say. Mm-hmm. But if you subscribe as a journalist to the tenets of democracy, what that ultimately means is that the best service that you can do to the democratic process is to help people get engaged in it and then just get the fuck out of the way. And, you know, part of the trick to that is you you can't start thinking that it's all about you and your opinions, you know. The truth is that our democracy actually works reasonably well, like disconcertingly well, given what a total mess parliament and the media and every other aspect of it is. Like, you know, it it does kind of come together okay, I think, um, and I'm constantly surprised by that. But um, uh, I think that if I can be persuaded by advocacy from 
competing points of view and I find that I can all the time, you know, in politics because I start from an assumption about people which is that they are probably there for around about the right reason and over the time that I've spent kind of covering politics, I'm more or less of that opinion. I mean, you meet some real dickheads who are there for the wrong reasons um, and you meet people who you know are psychologically different from um, normal people because you have to be, I think, to be in politics. But I I never get sick of hearing about w- who they are and why they do what they do because I think it tells me a lot um, about okay. the process. So I'm it, just babbling, aren't no, I? No, no, I'm, this I'm is also good. a long way from my original premise. How this, do I get that, here? That's fine, I like, but I like where we've got to with okay. this. I think right. this is really interesting to me because mm. I, that's kind of my – sometimes with Gruen, and I'll put it in my own world first before it, yeah. it comes to you, which is that sometimes I'll get feedback uh, you know, from people saying, well, you're – you know, you're you're supporting advertising and marketing. You know, like you you are the person who is like you know making this seem glamorous. Or my, right. Whereas the mm-hmm. trick of the show is always meant to be that you give them enough compliments that they will come on and reveal all their secrets, and that helps well, everybody, you know, uh, understand what's going on. Right. You well, learn you, more by giving them a space where they're happy to talk about what it is they do, rather yeah, well, than sure, being, sure, like yeah. you said, confrontational. You know, yeah. take, taking that approach of going, "Hey, you're all idiots, and this is all shit." Well, I think what you do on Gruen is you show you give people a a different place to stand to look at this stuff because I mean you see advertising all the time, right? Um, and it's so ubiquitous that it is a shared experience for most of humanity, you know, particularly on this continent, um, certainly. If you give people a different place to stand to look at something that's everywhere in their lives, then it's um, it might be interesting to them, it obviously is, but it's also useful, I think, because it gives them the ability to draw their own conclusions about what's going on. Now, that's not because you are lecturing them about what to think about what they're seeing. It's just you're giving them a little stepping stool to stand on to look at it. Well, you know? and I also uh, trust that the audience will then be able to use their mm. brains to go, well, I agree with that or I disagree with that. Like, you know, that the position of sure. the program is more a question or putting this stuff forward and then trusting mm. the audience to kind of, you know, engage on mm. you know, and make up their own opinions. But I, I, I mentioned that because of uh, Kitchen Cabinet, your yep. show. Yes, yeah. And uh, particularly this week, and I don't know if you saw any of this, oh, I don't no, know no. what you're like when it I comes to... I know that to... I've been called a Nazi on social media more times in the last week than I probably ever have before. Right. And, like someone I mean, called me a child rapist the other day. I'm like, whoa, hang guys. On, hang on, what? <laughs> I mean, that's... You rape one kid. I don't know. I yeah. mean, yeah, and reputation's with you forever. It's it's one of those but, things where... Okay, so this is what I wanted to get to, which is the idea, and most of it seemed to stem from the fact that Scott Morrison was yep. on the first episode of your show, and a yeah. lot of people, because of the... Uh, and I would agree, brutal regime that he oversaw when it came to Australia's border protection policy. Some people were like, well, I don't want to see that person humanised in any fashion, right? And so uh, I have not seen it, and I didn't follow all the coverage, but I saw enough of that to know that that was at least some feedback that was happening. So I thought that was a nice uh, intro into what your philosophy is in regard to making that show and what you're trying to uh, achieve from that show. And I feel like that speaks to what you've introduced as your overall philosophy, which is yes, this idea of right. generosity versus, yeah. you know, being confrontational. Yeah. So can you speak to that and around that? Sure, sure. Um, well, when we started making the show, um, I wanted to, much like the what I said about you and Gruen, like I wanted to give people a different 
view into politics, I suppose, because politics is a constant in all of our lives. It's very, very, um, it's very voguish, I think. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty much a gut national reaction to say you're not interested in politics or you think it's full of bullshit or whatever. But actually, I think most people, when you get talking to them, do know more about politics than they claim to, and they're usually more interested than they, you know, profess to be. Um, politicians make an enormous amount of decisions about our lives that are, I don't know, they're not, they're not random, but they're subjective. What politicians actually get interested in and what they get motivated to do something about, the difference between the issues that they just flick past, let go through to the keeper, and the ones that they latch onto and will die in a ditch for and actually make change even if it costs them political skin and that's a real equation that politicians have to calculate on a daily basis in politics and all of that is done out of sight like it's done in their heads or it's done in their little strategy meetings or with their staffers or whatever that's the stuff that interests me is like why why does this idea catch hold and why does that one not and often it's to do with their lives and and what they went through on their way into politics and why they're there and you know um because that speaks experiences that, that speaks to that idea that you were saying about them all well them not all yeah. but a lot of them starting with good intentions yeah like often you'll find that people got in because they were passionate about one particular sure. issue or some local issue yeah but I wonder what happens along the way because it feels to me like the yeah. system like you know, corrupts that out of them. And well, not corrupts it necessarily. Well, Maybe that's the wrong choice of words. But it feels like to me that, you know, you, I saw it with Julia Gillard, who I had known personally just from you know, yeah. around the traps beforehand and always thought, what a lovely person. And, what mm-hmm. you know, she'd be great leading this country. And mm. then by the time she got there, seemed so hopelessly compromised by a bunch of deals that she made to really well, you compromise, know, own the position. Compromise is a really taxing process. It's also a totally inevitable one. Like, it's really hard to get through a life in politics without compromising. And you see them change as they go through. Now, sometimes it's changed, some of it's changed for the better and some of it is changed for the worse. I think that um, they go through a process of understanding, I think, that there are so many issues, problems to be solved concurrently that if you're going to get anything at all done, you've got to form alliances with people and you've got to um, make deals. I guess you've got to decide how far you are prepared to compromise on a particular issue. Um, Now, the human trap in all of that is you make deals, you get attacked, you get defensive, and then the next thing you do, you're a bit more bulletproof, you're a bit more kind of elephant hide, you you don't listen to the feedback that you're getting and after a while you can get so set in your own ways that you are absolutely deaf to criticism. Now that's a bad place to end up. The trick is to hear criticism and recognise when it's valid but also be bloody-minded enough to know um, the things that you're going to stick by and not compromise on. It's bloody impossible. I would find it impossible um, because I um, I think that I'm so full of doubts, you know, as a person. Um, I think it actually makes me an okay journalist. Um, Lee Sales wrote, once wrote this little book called On Doubt about the virtue of doubt um, in journalism. And whether that's um, someone telling you something and you doubt, you know, you think, I think you're lying, or... Um, you 
are full of doubt in a more broad way in the sense that you don't allow yourself to get seized uh, or caught up with a particular version of events. You allow yourself to be open to other interpretations. Then I think that's quite a valuable thing. Now, going back to the Morrison thing, right? So um, I knew, I mean, when we decided to put that episode first, um, we said, well, look, there'll be people who will really hate that because he is a he is of the divisive figures I've encountered you know my time watching politics he is really one that people really um, really reserve some very white hot anger towards and it's because you know when people really he was brought to the national attention he was doing the stopping the boats thing which involved doing those crazy press conferences right um where he was just standing there being the most unpleasant person you could possibly imagine. Right. You know, you can't answer that que- You can't ask that question. I mean, it got to this sort of Monty Python kind of phase. Which also goes against, yeah, many of the kind of, I guess, basic tenets of this idea of an open government, you know. Mm-hmm. And that firstly really yep. annoys people. Right. You and know, A, he's doing something that a lot of people have a philosophical objection to anyway. So if you're a person like me, sure, yeah. the idea that somebody's really effective at a job that you don't think should be being done right. makes them a you know A-grade yep. enemy number one. Second, yep. that it's not an open process and you know that he's constantly talking about these things. In fact, of, he went out of his way to make it a closed process. A closed I mean, process. Uh, you know, to the, to the furthest possible extreme, even to the extremes that really seem kind of unnecessary, even from an extremist perspective, like, you know, well, we're not going to let doctors talk about what they do or whatever. You know, like, it's, it's, it is certainly pretty comprehensive, right? So, so I, I think that people, you know, dislike that. But I also yeah. think that people have a real basic problem with the fact that he relied so heavily on his Christian principles in his, like, speeches and that everything that he seemed to be doing to at least the outsider seemed to be counter to those exact same principles. And right. I think that then puts you into this area where a lot of people are going to have a problem with you. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, Let alone the basic just I, kind of, I, you I don't know, find any political of that surprising. Stuff. Nonetheless, I think... Even if you really don't like someone, uh-huh. and like, and as, I, as I've already explained, I view my own function in this process as it's really important to me to be consistent with everyone that I talk to, right? right. And it is, a, it is a benign interview format. Of course it is. I mean, that's what it's designed to be because when you go to someone's house, you're polite to them because you're in the house. You right. know, like in some ways it's a very old-fashioned sort of concept – and an old-fashioned show. Um, but yeah, now, but it's also one of those things where, again, and I want to hear more about this, but the fact that you go to someone's house, the yeah. reason you can go to their house is because you, there's an assumption that you're going to, you know, you're not going to you know, shit on polite. the floor, right? Yeah. Right. And so you get invited to the Apart party. that one time. Yeah. And, well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, yeah. you shit on one floor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. But, you and know, that's part of it. And then if people open their eyes, you can, even just from looking at what someone's house looks like, know, you can yeah. learn a lot about them. Yeah. Or from the fact that it's the first time they're cooking or the way they talk about yep. what they... I or mean, in you Scott can, Morrison's case, the fact that he taught himself to cook earlier this year. Hmm. Uh, in the hope you'd be on the show? Well, he denies it. I bet that's what it is. Um, All part of his leadership plan. 
But I mean, he's letting go. Okay, I've got to get the all these. I've got to be treasurer. The guys on a charm offence. Anyway, look. Well, but I that's think, interesting to me. So, talk to me about going yeah. into something like. So you say you go into these things being neutral, um, but you go in also knowing you know someone's record and what they've been doing and those sort yep. of things. What's your approach? Like you know, before you go there, I'm really interested in like how how do you plan it? Do you have like sort of things that you want to get to? Are you very like you t- talk me a little bit through that? Well, we do um, a lot of research on the person and what I'm looking for is stories that they can tell. You know, if you go to a if you go to dinner at someone's house and you turn up and you've brought something and you're not quite sure where to put the wine and you know, it's all awkward at start. But then you kind of get into if you're sitting there and cooking with them and you're talking about um, you're finding out a bit about them, you're being polite to them obviously. Um, and then you sit down and if you notice like you you sit down and have dinner and then you kind of get on to probably slightly meatier subjects. Right. Um, but I mean, it's I foreplay. See... It's like, you know what I mean? Like, you've, well, it's a date and like, you know, you do the gentle stuff first. You don't just like, you know, meet each other in a, you know, on a plane and fuck in the toilet. Like, no, it's there's a process to it. happened on remarkably few of the shows that we've right. done. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different series. But no, no, you're right. It is It is prepared in the sense that you want it to be a story about who they are. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes you do get you, – you've got to kind of work on it pretty close. I don't go go in there with a kind of script. It's more like a shape of the kind of questions that I want to ask. And so what I'm always looking for is stories that a person can tell. Because once you can let someone talk about themselves, it's easier for the audience to learn, you know, about them. Because you see them in their own environment talking – telling a story on their own terms and it has to be on their own terms it is a subjective format absolutely because you're letting them tell their own story now that's infuriating for a viewer who doesn't like that person who or who thinks they're full of shit because they're screaming at the television why don't you put your foot on his throat and ask blah 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 but look and I know that it, people find it contentious. and it, it, It's really only um, a thesis or a technique that is really tested when you are viewing an episode conducted with somebody that you do not like. Uh-huh. Because, you know, I'll do a show with somebody that people are like, oh, God, it's the greatest television ever. Oh, God, it's just so fabulous. I love that person. I love them. And you think, well, you probably love them already, right. to be honest. You know, um, I think the show works best when you see someone that you think you know everything about and then – you find out a bit more about them or you think that they are a bit different in person from the way that you expected them to be. Now, with the Morrison one, you know, um, like I said, he's a highly contentious figure. But also the thing that I found really interesting about him, and this is probably the most important thing that I learned in the process and, and, and doing that show with him, is that of all the politicians I've met who have gone, you know, I mean, being immigration minister, people are going to hate you anyway. Right. Um, it, it's not a job where... There are answers that please people, um, no matter what your approach is. And whether that was, you know, going back to the Rudd days where they came to office vowing to overturn the kind of Howard era detention centre um, detention regime and then spent a number of years kind of basically coming back to it. Um, it's never like it's it's awful and it's difficult and it's um, very hard to get a, a clear answer on how to handle that issue without really um, 
upsetting a whole lot of people. But that's but, but what you've just said then is but, why I wish like more people like you were in politics than love, the people who are black I'd be and no white. I'd no good. I'd just be, you know, I, I really I really would be. But, but, I, I just think this is a like the But this is one of those issues. What, it's why, a diabolical tell, issue. Tell, tell, me why, tell me why people can't do this. Tell me why our government, you know, mm. can't come out. You're Scott Morrison, who can yeah. talk and clearly is, a, you know, if, you know, he is to believe, be believed about his Christian ideals and let's yeah. give him the benefit of the doubt that he's sincere about those beliefs, then why can't a Scott Morrison say, hey, there's no good solution to this problem. We think this is the best solution, but we notice that there are also all these terrible consequences and we are constantly trying to work on all those and come up with a better solution than what we have. This is just the best at the moment and we're constantly working on something better. It always seems to be this black or white position. And maybe I know, it's that really drives me, that like, drives me crazy. The boats. It the drives me crazy. It drives me crazy that the black and white thing and the you know good and evil thing as well. I mean, you know... I don't know. I've talked to lots of politicians who have not only grappled with this problem but also changed their minds on this issue, you know, over time. And um, one of the most sort of pernicious elements of this debate is that this sort of question of motivation and who's good and who's evil and who's moral and who's immoral is really, um, you know, there's been a lot of dirt thrown around, I think. Um, The thing that I found interesting about Morrison mm-hmm. um, talking to him. And, I mean, I thought this was interesting, but um, but I'm accustomed on that show to kind of looking for small things, like small pointers about people. I have never met, I think, a politician who is more comfortable with himself in the face of, like, lots of people chasing him around saying you are evil like most of them seem to be a bit bothered by it i thought he was not bothered at all that's it was, really interesting it was really interesting because i like i look at that as a person who for reasons discussed above i wouldn't go into politics because i reckon i'm so suggestible that no, not suggestible but i you know if i had people rallying the streets going god you are the antichrist and i mean that has happened a bit in the last week because i had sure. lunch with the guy You've so had an you insight. know i've got I've had a slight insight but that's you know? a, but that is the point that you're making like i mean yeah. you literally you were the nicest person in australia last week and then you had lunch with scott morrison and now you're a child <laughs> rapist like imagine what it's like for the guy who was actually approving the whole I, thing I, imagine i know i mean he must have been getting some feedback look uh, yeah i uh, i can see why people who are really passionate about um, about that issue would find it infuriating that I could sit in the house with the guy yeah. that they hold responsible for all this stuff um, and and not, you know, take the opportunity to stab him with a butter knife. Right. But, you know, I'm never going to do why that. And that's why I'm they let you... never going to do well, that. Well, that's why they let you do that job and not me. Right. Because I would <laughs> have stabbed that, him with a butter knife. Well, you so. probably would have. But, you know, I, I just think... I don't know. I'm curious about people. Yep. I'm always curious about people. Um, and I like to hear about their lives. I think it's interesting to know that stuff. I just always do. And I think um, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of conflict based kind of interaction between journalists and oh, the media and and politicians. I think there's some space to do it a bit differently given that we've got, you know, all of this digital space sloshing around, you know, much more than um, 
you know, we had when back when you were working in newspapers, right? Like, well, I mean, the other thing is be... you, you put your chumminess on Front Street, which is is what I like about it. You know, mm. I, I don't agree with Andrew Bolt on a lot of things, but the one thing that I do agree with on is like the idea that if you are going to be someone who's prosecuting a certain mm. case or if you have a certain friendship mm. with somebody, mm. like at least he puts it out there and says, I have a friendship with this person and thus you can you know, yeah. see his perspective through that. I think that your show puts that on Front Street. You're going, this is going to be a friendly yeah. conversation. Whereas like a lot of the time in the media when you're reading things, you don't know yeah. who's friends with who yeah. and why, you know, Joe Hockey's always getting a great write-up from this guy despite yeah, blah, blah, right. blah or yeah. whatever. I mean, at least on, there's a Front Street on this that yeah. says this is a friendly conversation. Well, that's the way it's designed to be really because um, I think it's – it, it's never it's never going to be the technique that kind of replaces what journalism does. Absolutely not. Like, it, absolutely not. How do you but, react to the criticism? That's the – you, generally. You talked about Scott Morrison being a person yeah. who obviously is a bit Teflon about it all. What do you all. mean, being called a Nazi or being called a sort of non-journalist sycophant? I mean, I mean in, any criticism. I'm not a Nazi, how, how, are so, you, how are you with feedback? I'm okay with it. Like, I mean, I find it I, – I think that it's reasonable that people have um, – they – want to know where the line between journalism and entertainment is. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's a line that has got a lot more blurry. But I also think, you know, I'm also getting older all the time and I'm less worried about just doing the things that I think I'm good at and just thinking, well, you know, if you don't like it, switch it off. Like there's a critique that it's a sort of a nefarious creeping, you know, um, tendency in journalism. I don't agree with that really. I just think there's a whole lot more stuff that goes on now um, because journalism and media and commentary and all of that is no longer contained within the constraints that once contained it, i.e. Um, number of pages in the newspaper and number of hours in a, in a television news bulletin, which is like even 15 years ago, the way that people got their information about politics and so on. Now, I remember when I was in the press gallery and I was you know, writing for a newspaper and I thought, it's interesting to me that the amount of stuff, the insight that you can get into politicians when you like go and have a beer with them or whatever they tell you different stuff from when you're having an interview with them and sometimes it's stuff that you know sometimes it's just stuff that's funny but sometimes the funny gives you an idea about how their relationships with other people that they're making deals with and stuff work and you get an idea of their position not only in the political firmament how that works but also where they view themselves and you know what if someone is making decisions about your lives I bloody want to know about that person's view of where they belong in the in the continuum, you know. Do you think you're a left-wing person? Do you think you're a right-wing person? What, how do you view yourself uh, in comparison to the rest of the rest of the population, you know? I find that stuff interesting. Now, people who are really people want different things from their news coverage from their media. It's because it's the reason why this sort of absolute explosion in um, in media has happened in the last decade because it's there are so many more outlets that can deliver people exactly what they're looking for. Now, in that context, um, if you see a you know a half hour show on television that doesn't deliver you news or insights in the way that you want it, plus the annoying bitch who's hosting it is you know um, carrying a cake in a basket, you lose your mind, man. <laughs> but I mean, I, there's not much I can do about that. I, I you know I. 
invented this show because I thought it might produce something a bit different from everything else that was excellent that was already on offer. And I would never argue that something that, you know, well, you're not, you're not, it shouldn't you're not be 7.30 it, yeah. or whatever. You're you not know? lobbying it for it to replace the 7.30? No, I think that would be <laughs> foolish. Would be, Every night. But, but, you know, I just think if you can offer a bit of extra insight, then it's useful. I also think, too, you know, people find their way into being interested in politics through different ways. And, like, I do think it's incredibly snobby when people think, oh, you know, you can't you can't comment on politics until you've digested, you know, every daily newspaper in the in the in the um in the nation and read weighty texts. I mean, people learn about politicians in all sorts of different ways. Oh, absolutely. And they're and all the, perfectly... I, I mean, and everyone's vote counts they can the same. Be useful. Right, exactly. So anyway, um, your question was, how am I with the criticism? Yep. Um, look, um, when things get into a bit of a pecking party, and last week, like, I couldn't even, you know, I mean, it's social crazy. media without <laughs> some I mean, extremely, you know, heartfelt epithets. And they were generally from people who really care I about... I normally like you, and I care about... Situation to which they didn't right. feel that I applied enough kind of grunt. Uh-huh. And my view is the second I start treating people on that show depending on like, uh, uh, in a way that absolutely is dictated to by my opinion of their policies is the day that that show becomes an absolute waste of time, you know. Um, because if I'm just being nice to people that I think are right – and horrible to people I think are wrong, then the show becomes about me, which is just really stupid, right? Um, so I don't feel like I don't read that stuff or think, oh, God, you know, um, this is a terrible show. I still really believe in the program. Um, and I just I recognise that it has the capacity to really ignite strong reactions based on what people think of the guest. I'm going to pause to here just for a second uh, for no other reason than I've been in meetings all day and I need to go to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're back. I was very quick. <laughs> you know, when you're like trying to rush, but at the same time, you don't want to be too quick because that implies you didn't wash your hands. So it's like sure. I always have to do a speed wash of the hands. And then <laughs> as I walk through the office. straightened out, yeah. But, uh, but not only that, Annabelle, what I end up doing is that I end up um, – like doing a show of like wiping my hands on myself, <laughs> like to just like like really like no, I, I wash my hands. Like I'm really putting a show in. Is there no paper towel or anything in there, or you just want to make sure that everybody? Oh, my hands are almost dry by then, right, but I, that yeah. is purely yeah. so that people don't think I haven't washed my hands. Has someone ever accused you of not washing your hands? I mean, is it? It's weird that I'm like yeah. obsessed with that, but I have two things that I'm really paranoid about: the fact that people don't think I've washed my hands. Right. In fact, I've often. Are you worried that other people haven't washed their hands? I mean. No, you're not one of those. I'm not germophobic in any way. Mm. No, not in not in any way. And I have animals all over the house, and you know, I eat shit off the floor, and <laughs> like, I, oh, I do. Like in my office, you've got a bulletproof immune system as a result. I mean, in my office, like out the back of like uh, the, the amount of times that I just eat, pick up something that was on the table that I've half eaten, or like mm. you know, smoke something that was half smoked, or mm. like I don't know how many days it's been there for. It's like, whatever, I'm fine with that. Okay, but I don't want people to think that I haven't washed my hands in the toilet. And the other right. one is. I can't have anyone thinking I made a bad smell. That's my wow. 
don't like it. That one's gross. So, so if, if you're I'm in an p- elevator right. and there's so what hap- So you just say, ha, huh, but then you don't. You're not vulnerable to the he who smelt it dealt it uh, um, suspicion. Okay, if we're in a, a communal place like a plane, you can't do anything about the right. fact that like there's just random smells yeah. happening all the time, right? Mm. But I won't go into a toilet. If like oh, if I yeah, open okay. the door and there's, and there's really, a smell, not yeah. because I can't not handle the smell, yeah. but because I don't want to come out of there and people to think that's my smell. Right. So you're having to deal with the smell. Yeah. Some of those smells are almost um, are almost physical, aren't they? Almost palpable. Like a really intense, you know, one will just be. It reminds me of that great line of Clive James's when he was writing about um, having an um, interview with someone with really bad halitosis, and there's this great line where he says. Um, he mentions sort of in parentheses while writing this up, you know, um, by this stage, his breath was undoing my tie. <laughs> and it's, it's the greatest evocation of a smell that is so intense that it almost has a form. <laughs> what, uh, do you have any of those little weird quirks? Is there something that you're particular about? Is there anything that you're particularly paranoid about or that you just like is one of those little Annabelle things? Oh, Hygiene-wise, almost nothing. I'm just a terrible slob. If I feel like I've, you know, picked up after myself, yep. you know, over the course of a day, I feel vaguely smug. I'm Were you always that, that case? Yeah, well, see, I grew up on a farm and, you know. What sort of farm uh, was it? Uh, sheep and cereal crops. Still is. My folks are still there. but Whereabouts um, was that? On the Adelaide Plains. Oh, on the Adelaide Plains. Mm, the Adelaide Plains. I love it's that Adelaide. And Adelaide has plains and hills. Yeah. Oh, I don't go to the hills. It's scary. No, you're, a, you're plain it's weird. people. I'm a plains person. Yeah. <laughs> is mm. there a little. But it's dusty. It's so uh-huh. dusty that, you know, really everything's always covered in dust anyway. So it has absolutely lessened my commitment to rigorous house. Household cleanliness because then we just sweep up oh, the dust's back again. Right. Also, we had mouse plagues the whole time. So right. basically, if my army door is not full of mice, I'm perfectly happy. You're like, fine. It's a it's a low bar. It's like really. I had three mice this I, year. I do remember when I was a little kid. Like it's it's a really it's a. <laughs> It's a visual memory of great intensity, opening my undie drawer and then just they're just being like mice going. Because <laughs> a proper mouse plague on the Adelaide Plains where it's like, you know, there's sort of haystacks and grain yep. sheds. And when the mice really, right. it's a good year and the mice, if they take off, then they just, there's hundreds of thousands of them right. running around and they just get everywhere and they eat everything, paper, plastic, underpants, you know. <laughs> They're merciless. So anyway, maybe that has just given me a kind of relaxed approach to hygiene in general. Well, I mean, if you've got a mouse in your undies. I grew up with vermin. A vermin in your underpants. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, tell me about what growing up on the farm was like, because I'm obviously a farm boy as well. So you know, from dairy. Yeah, dairy farm. That's right. Oh, oh, do we have an enemy in you as well? I parents. Yeah, yeah, when, oh, that's right. I they came to the. They are excellent. yes, yeah, they're very farm people. Um, so they're still on the farm as well. But what was your experience growing up on the farm? Do you have brothers and um, sisters? I have an older brother and a younger brother. And okay, so you're in the middle. Did that yeah. inform you in any way? Do you think? Um, or did being the only girl in the family, well, the only child girl, none really, of that? I wasn't massively um, conscious of sort of gender, really. I mean, we were. We. I mean, I was probably a real a bit of a tomboy. I uh-huh. suppose I just play with my brother and um but you didn't have an awareness of that at the time because you're a farm kid right no, most farm kids yeah. are kind of tomboyish yeah 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 it's hard to be a princess when a you're gun. like yeah. oh yeah um <laughs> i do remember once i did I, I i found myself covertly admiring my school friends like barbie dolls she had one of those like barbie dolls you, right. you may not be aware of this but it was like a it's like a giant disembodied head 
and it's purely for hairstyling purposes. Oh. Yeah, like so it's like a head of a Barbie, right. giant, like actual human size with hair and then you style it. It's supposed to be a sort of like play around with hairstyling right. Barbie. Yeah. It's kind of... It's a confronting Barbie. I I'm not going to lie like about that. Yeah. But it was quite... I mean, the other part that, that it would be confronting as well, the headless Barbie. Yeah, exactly. Just the weird... There's plenty of those. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. <laughs> they found everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I remember Did, it, did once... it have the same hair or were you able to put different hair and wigs on it? Or was it always just it's the just Barbie hair? It's just the same on blonde hair. Barbie's just... hair is okay. always the same. Like All sometimes right. it's perm, sometimes it isn't, but sure. it's generally... But this anyway, is what it was. But I remember once thinking, oh, I wish I had one of those. But then I thought it was so embarrassing to have that thought because really... There was nothing girly at my house and it was sort of – I think I probably took the view that extreme girliness was probably a bit embarrassing. So, like, I didn't ever ask for a Barbie. But if someone had given me one of those big head Barbies – Did you really work on the farm? Were you like yeah, – Yeah. So yeah. you were put to work? Yeah, yeah. Well, we did um, – I mean, not in a kind of um, down the salt mines sort of equation, but we always worked. And in school holidays when I was sort of a teenager, we worked – all summer on the farm, yeah. And what were, what were you like at school? Like, what what was a young Annabelle like? Um, oh, well, I, um, when I was about 12, well, like at the end of year seven, which is kind of the end of primary school in South Australia, mm. I got a scholarship to this uh, school in Adelaide. It was a like a quite a posh girls' school. And um, so, and I went there to be a boarder, you know, when I was 12. So I kind of moved into the city when I was 12. That was pretty you know, different. But I, by the way, just for the mm-hmm. record, this podcast should be called instead of Willosophy with Will Anderson, it should be called Will Talks to People Who Got Scholarships. Oh the really? The only thing huh. that's been consistent through almost every episode of this show is, is the role of scholarship in the life of people that I have talked to. So talk wow. to me about that. Was it one of those ones where you had to sit an exam yeah. for the scholarship? Uh-huh. Is mm-hmm. that the kind of way that it yep. worked? Mm-hmm. And so you were academically yeah. you know, you were doing well academically yeah. obviously. Yeah. And so how did that change your life then? Um, well, I mean, I kind of wound up um, at this school uh, just – Living having a, there, having right? Having, yeah, living yeah. there, right? So it was a boarding house. There were all these girls living there from, you know, usually much further flung locations than me. So, uh-huh. And the thing that surprises me when I look back actually is how – unperturbed I was by this kind of quite extraordinary life change because I mean you know massive on the farm You've gone, middle of nowhere I mean, there's no mouse you know. plague at, no no <laughs> but it was sort of like it was it was like having friends around you all around the clock which was pretty great because on the farm I mean look I had my friends that didn't live too far away um, and in fact my like old friend from primary school uh, is a woman called Wendy Sharp who I just wrote a cookbook with. So I kind of like kept, you know, I made really great friends. But you could never just ride over to someone else's house on your bike because, you know, you'd have to get a lift and it'd have to be, you know, you wouldn't really hang out after school in the way that like my kids do. They live in a kind of urban area. So they're just like, we'll just duck a few doors up the road to visit friends. None of that. So going to boarding school was kind of like being at this, this slumber party the whole time, you know. It was pretty – I kind of quite enjoyed it, actually. Oh, that's I, I, good. Yeah. And what, and what sort of yeah, experiences did it open it, you up to? Were you just into academics or did you end up doing, like, extracurricular stuff as oh, well? Oh, yeah. Look, I did heaps of stuff. I'm, a, you know, a bit of a joiner at school, I okay. guess. But, um, so but, what, what do you think your personality was from your perspective? And how, how, do you think, <laughs> how do you think you were viewed by other people at school? Um – don't know. Um, I mean, I wasn't a, like a super cool kid, 
but I probably, you know, I think I was reasonably well liked and um, I was pretty enthusiastic, reasonably friendly, you know. So I think that might, yeah, sort of a slightly nerdy but um, socially functional, I guess, would be my um, And it was line. all girls? Yeah. So how was that, like the experience of being, uh, you know, because you've come from, it you know, two brothers yeah. and suddenly you're in this environment where it's predominantly women. I yeah. always, is, is that, do you think, what's your uh, opinion, like re-schooling? Do you like the idea of separate schools or do you like the idea of co-educational <sighs> schools? Do you have a thought on that? Isn't it? I don't really have a firm view. It's just so stupid because, um, look, I think that, um, working at school exclusively with other girls certainly allowed me. Like I certainly, gen- I certainly graduated from high school with absolutely no anxieties about you know what I was capable of or things that I should and shouldn't be interested in. Like I didn't have any of that kind of well, girls don't do this or whatever. And and I think that that is a great legacy of a single sex education. Um, but that said, like, you know, um, I really enjoyed having, like, being being at university. Like, that was a great part of university. And there... Um, Did you feel like you uh, came out of high school with a good idea about men? Because that's the thing that... Here's the thing huh. that I... Here's the experience... No, I, t- I had no idea. Yeah, so this is the anecdotal, uh, like, if and I this is no research, this is purely me just anecdotally from what I've talked Hit to. Hit me with it. I think that co-educational schools are good for uh, boys, and I think that same-sex schools tend to be uh, good for women because the boys are the distraction, like, normally, yeah. you know, both in the way that they behave and those yeah. sort of things. But the girls actually... How, all boys' schools are a nightmare. Yeah, Like, right. the girls, you know, are... Uh, like Civilising Civilising influence but they're more mature particularly at that age yeah because that's the age when they are yeah going ahead in maturity in a way that the boys aren't with you know the hormones and but the thing that are only downside for girls that i can see is like i know a lot of girls who came out of all girls schools with such weird ideas about you know (laughs) the opposite sex and my theory is always like like, you know how you get pregnant and uh stuff really oh yeah stop hanging out with catholics man well i mean yes well that was the same sex school in my town was was a catholic school so (laughs) i love those guys (laughs) but did you did they prepare you well for uh boys like i mean or were you just able to know other boys or anything really like you know i was just was that even a thing that was part of your like life i think i probably was a pretty late developer in that respect like you know (laughs) i just i don't know i kind of enjoyed school i i think i probably would have got a bit distracted if there were boys around to be honest god listen it sounds like you know an interview with sister barbara Let me tell you, I was really hot, though. Really, really super hot, particularly in my debating jacket. Yes. (laughs) So you did debating at school? Yeah. So uh, did you? Yes, I I did. Did you work on a. Was there a school newspaper? Were you like a young cadet journalist? No, God, no. No, I had nothing to do with journalism. What brought you to journalism? Accident, really. Accident. I mean, I went to uni and I went traveling. What did you study at university? um, Arts law. At Adelaide uh, University? Yeah, so I finished my law degree and everything and I don't know, I, I, I seriously just got to the end of that degree and thought, well, I don't know what to do now. I, I certainly don't want to be a lawyer. Um, so I was really just absolutely casting around. But um, 
a friend of mine, actually, who had become a journalist and who is now a politician, weirdly enough, um, said, why don't you do a cadetship, you know, test at the Advertiser, which was Uh the Adelaide paper, still is. And um, so I did and I got the job. And then, you know, about three weeks into it, I went, oh, this is really good. I should have thought of this before. This is excellent fun. So... Oh, yeah, and you had a good time that at the Tizer, because that's interesting to me, yeah. because when I finished my journalism degree, yep. uh, and I, I was working at the Fin Review in the in the press gallery, but I wanted to get a job on a regular, you know, yep. like Metro Daily. Yep. That was kind of my, my idea. Yep. And I had got I got a, a, an offer from the Sydney Morning Herald, mm. and I, like I, for whatever reason, I was like, I, I was doing other interviews, and I went to Adelaide and right. uh, did an interview for the a cadetship of the advertiser. Wow. And I didn't get it. Thank fuck. I uh, (laughs) really is one of those moments in my life where I was like, what would have my life been like if I got that? You got an offer from the Sydney Morning Herald and you're like, no, I I, I want to hold until I get the response from Adelaide. I was working. You know what it was? I think it was actually just the the Herald. It felt like an experience that um, because I'd been in the press uh, gallery and Mm. and I'd actually been at Fairfax Mm -hmm. in like, you know, and the film review and the Sydney Morning Herald, particularly at that time. I mean, you know, the Canberra offices were right next to each other. If you went to Sydney to, you know, to to do anything, you were basically in the same place. So I kind of felt like... you wanted some different architecture. Right. I wanted to go and see what else was out there, you know. But I also, I think probably in my head, I was like, well, maybe there'll be more opportunity somewhere yeah. else, you know, like somewhere where I can go in and, and make a bit of a splash. Like, you know, so I went to the Adelaide Advertiser. Anyway, ended up getting a bunch of offers from different people, except for the Adelaide Advertiser, nothing. And I was like, well, probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me was So what not- did you do? Oh, well, that was when I, I moved to Melbourne and ended right. up like at the Herald Sun. Right, and then, right, right. Yeah, and then yeah. started doing comedy. So, yeah. like, I mean, that was pretty much, you know, that, that's what happened. <laughs> sort of Herald Sun comedy Six months slide. at the Herald Sun. Uh, yeah. In the, basically in the week before they moved, they, they used to have a, they're now down at South Bank and they've been yeah. in that building for over, well, it must be, yeah, 20 years now. They've been at the South Bank building. Uh, they used to be at the other end of town, up the Collins, the Parliament yeah. end of yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. So I was there in the period between when they were in the old building and when they moved to the oh, new so building. Oh, you were in the, um, the changeover hut. But my favourite thing about that is I go to the Herald Sun and whatever during the comedy festival to do like, you know, photo shoots or yeah. like, you know, do an interview, whatever. And the security lady who has been there that whole time <laughs> reminds me every time. She goes, you're still in the system. You could come back and work here. <laughs> Imagine that would be great if you just like moved in. I mean, get your key recut to the front like, door yeah, just and then just key. start filing. I mean, your logon probably still works, eh? It may, well, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, sure, it might. Did you get bored with journalism? Like, why? What didn't you like about it? Like, why did you leave it behind? It's interesting. Okay, well, I mean, the thing that I would say is, firstly, that I don't think I had a real idea of what journalism was when I did it. I honestly don't believe that I did. Do you I have a better idea now? Because traditionally it's people who who don't do journalism that have the best idea about what it should be. Or at least have the best <laughs> feedback to give yeah. you in the same way as people who don't do comedy yeah, like I to know. give you feedback about how comedy should work. It's a democracy. Everyone I get gets it. a vote. Right. Well, then everyone gets their opinion, yeah. you know, and I get the right to go, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, stop telling me to talk so much on my own podcast. Now, come on, Fuck just tell all. me what about the journalism thing. You didn't You didn't think you really knew. I grew up in the country, um, as you know, uh, I, from when I was t- a teen, like I, I've said this before, we're, we're here in the building that used to be, you know, Zabrutas, um, mm. you know, because I do grew in out of this building, and a man who used to, you know, sit in that office down there that's now got eight people working in it, mm. Andrew Denton, uh, I used to watch television shows. Yeah. He's called The Money or the Gun, yeah. and it was I that. a mm. brilliant, brilliant television show, and it it was funny. 
but it was journalism. Like there was an episode called The Year of the Patronizing Bastard, which I mentioned all the time, but it was about disability. Mm. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen someone really genuinely talk about disability in a way that was not insulting, but was so revelatory and also so celebratory, mm. but without, you know, gloss. It wasn't some, you know, like, yeah. you know, aren't the disabled great? It was a realistic, genuine look at a, you know, the way that we look at disability, but also the lives of disabled people. But it was also, you know, wall-to-wall funny. Yeah. And I guess that where I grew up, out of those two things, what I really loved was the comedy. And yeah. like what I really wanted to do was comedy that dealt in those areas. But there's no uni course for that. No, like, no, you know, when you're smart at school like no, and you go and talk to your careers advisor and you're getting great marks, they don't tell you that you should be doing, you know, hey, you know what you should do? Take yeah. that and go and do comedy. No one says that to you. So the closest thing that I could think of was journalism, you know, because in my head I was like, well, you know, it's some sort of journalism. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I can do that. So... I went and studied journalism, but I never was one of those people who had a particular... And the more that I learned about journalism, I had this idea in my head of it really being that fourth estate, keeping the bastards honest, that it was, you know, that was very much in my head what I thought it was. And the more and more I learned about it and the more and more I saw of how it worked, you know, the more and more I got disillusioned with that and was like, ah, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, this is not for me. I want somewhere where I can say exactly what I want to say in the way that I want to say it. I think there was a or lot the of the constraints, kind the of, transactional yeah. nature of it. I had this great uh, boss in the Canberra Press Gallery called Tom Burton. Oh, I don't yeah, know if yeah, you yeah. remember Tom. Yeah, I, well, yeah, uh, but I remember him. He was um, a brilliant uh, journalist and the guy who also advised me to leave the Canberra Press Gallery. <laughs> no, because I sat down with him for advice. Yeah. I said, I've got all these offers, and yeah, but I don't feel like my heart's in it. And he was like, leave, go and do something else, you know, mm. find something you like. And I'm always very grateful about that um, because I, I, at the time I was doing fine. And sometimes I think that doing fine can kill you. Sometimes I think you can float along in something for way too long because yeah, you're right. doing fine at it, you know. And um, But he, uh, I was very lucky that I was there in the sort of Keating, Houston, you know, that time, the, you know, the yeah. um, unlosable election, all those sort of things. And um, I remember him sitting me down and talking me through a conversation he'd had with Keating about being on the drip and not being on the drip and how right. all that worked and... Even then, you know, I, I guess I was naive. I think that's probably what it was. You know, I was a country kid, you know. Mm. I grew up on the same road as my grandparents grew up on and that my dad's lived on all his life and my parents voted national all their life and sure. the only politician I'd ever met was Peter McGoran, you know. Like, I mean, this was not, a, a, you know, I wasn't a worldly yeah. kid, you know, and I was at university in Canberra. So, you know, so I just guess the more I learned about it, the more that I didn't really... Well, I didn't feel like it was functioning in the way that, you know, I, I saw myself having a place in. How do you feel that journalism is? How do you, what do you feel like the current state of journalism is? Well, it's... I mean, obviously it's, it's a lot of things. It's but, all over the shop in lots of ways because it's, it's trying in that completely disembodied way that things are that are a composite of a lot of different people and a lot of different enterprises. It's struggling to accommodate all of the change that's come our way in the last 10 years, you know, 15 years. That sort of... So I think about journalism, right, and I think of um, journalists covering and reporting on and commentating on cataclysmic change that overtakes other industries, right? Like, so 
car manufacturers or forestry workers or, you know, and it's kind of um, we're covering it as a news story. What we kind of get messed up by is when it's happening to us, you know, because um, the media industry is an industry apart from being a, um, a really big chunk of a functioning democracy. And when there's a survival threat in the air in any industry, it makes people react in different ways. Now, in some ways, what's happened to the media industry or more broadly than that, I guess, the communications world in the last um, decade and a half is hugely exhilarating and a great democratisation of process. I mean, I think that that is the story of media. It is more democratic the the further that um, we evolve. So if you think of um, way back when it was a punishable offence to print the Bible in English, you know, um, and then the massive... Um, fusses that were made about you know, television and radio and who was going to destroy whom. Um, the trend is inexorably towards greater choice, greater participation by the end consumer. Where we are now, where um, audiences for media, whether they're newspaper readers or um, you know video online viewers or television viewers or um, blog readers or – I like how he still his word blog. It's terrible, isn't it? So, but, you know, people – you know, what you consume over a day – I did have somebody say to me the other day, it's like, you know, it's like a video blog. I was like, they have a whole Aww. word for that that people have been using for a decade. <laughs> you could get tripped up. It's a real banana skin. You go for a cup of tea and you come back and there's a whole new range of uh, – there's a whole new glossary of terms. But, you know, that y- you have to accept – the downside with the upside of that. Like um, when you are a, um, a reporter or, you know, even if, you, if you're looking at um, business entities that are media entities like newspapers or whatever, you know, you know a lot more about your audience now because you can see exactly what they read and how long they read it for and how their eyeballs move while they read it and, you know, which bits they liked and which bits make them switch off. I mean, you know, every TV show has got a minute-by-minute switch-on, switch-off kind of ratings mechanism and newspapers know exactly which stories people like to read, which is why you look at the newspaper and it's all man rapes girlfriend in bar, you know, and you're like, oh God, what? And then it's like an East Midlands footballer from the UK or something, you know, like people read stuff that is kind of shouty at them or is intriguing, which is why you've got all of those headlines that now say things like, um, it was a beautiful wedding. What happens next will revolt you. You know, you think, okay, what is that? Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, what I'm saying is that there is a, a huge amount of information now that media companies have about what people like to read and, um, uh, and for how long and so on. In the old days, we didn't used to do that. Like you'd, you'd publish what you thought was the best thing, you know, you'd publish the, the best account of the day or whatever in your one deadline a day if you work for a newspaper. But now you've got all of this sort of feedback about what everybody wants and so you've, you're kind of trying to keep consumers happy as well as doing that 
core thing about doing the best job that you can. How do to, you how do you balance those things? Because I don't know. I, ab- people ab- struggling. It's, absolutely. It's, when it comes to like, I mean, for example, with Gruen, we yeah. get minute by minutes. Yeah. Obviously, minute by minute breakdowns get sent to me, right. mm-hmm. and I refuse to read them. Right, because, because once you know what people love and hate, then you start generate. You start changing. And what I, you I am fully, right? but also I'm fully a believer that. Like, you know, that Steve Jobs thing of it's the, it's not the audience's job to know what they love or hate. I mean, they can make okay, those decisions themselves. but that's a deeply democratic instinct, right? No, it's not. Because people aren't making decisions. We don't have mm. a, a literal insight into why they're making a decision. Right. Like, for example, with a minute by minute, mm. like what they might be doing, you can like go, oh, I don't like that. And it can take you a minute and a half to, to switch off. To switch off. Yeah. Like, it's not like people are sitting there immediately, yeah. you know, on some testing machine. But also, as you were saying, you, you hear it on commercial radio all the time. And I've seen it actually being in the process myself. Mm. a show works because it's a real balance of things right right? but then you suddenly go oh well you know people love when you talk about your girlfriend and then suddenly it's only him talking about his girlfriend and then you're like oh well actually i don't want to this is like do you know what this is exactly like it's about opinion polling and politics right exactly the same phenomenon right because the better the information gets the more paranoid people get like imagine like i could have spent the whole last week just going on Twitter and reading people's critical responses to Scott Morrison and right. thinking, I must be a bad person, I'm an idiot, um, I'll, I will completely change the way I make my program, which I'm not going to do because I went into it with a really firm idea of how I was going to approach it and that, that um, consistency of approach, no matter who I was talking to, it had to be polite and I had to be um, allowing them to tell their story it had to be consistent, otherwise it wouldn't work, right? But the more information that you have about what people think, the more thrown off you can get, which is the interesting flip side of the democratisation of information, right? Because um, and it's the same with politicians. The more you show them polls and the more there are, and for media companies, polls are a great news generator because you know why? They're predictable. They've almost always got a story in them. They're not that expensive and you've got a guaranteed splash that will, moreover, freak the shit out of any politician that's listening, right? Right. And then once a politician has started getting guided by polls, and they're like, well, um, I did this and then my poll ratings went down, so I'll never do that again, you know, then you are starting to engage in a uh, deeply conjecture-based um, process of decision making. Right. And this is why I come back to this idea when you were saying before about, you know, it's an undemocratic idea for me to, you know, but I think that we spend so much time, you know, and this is that polling driven thing yep. of worrying about tomorrow, you know, the 24 yes. hour mu- well, news cycle. Well, I was just cycle. teasing you with that remark, well, but, but I think. But, but I agree with you to a certain extent. I, well, at least I think that the comment is valid and mm. I want to address it, which is this idea of like, you know, talking about those, um, you know, kind of clickbait headlines, you know, mm-hmm. what happened next, mm. you know, you won't believe. Yeah. Or, you know, even the fact that they just, if you'd only read headlines, you would have a completely different idea of what the news is these days to, you right. know. yeah. Hey, hang, hang on. The, Sam the Bachelorette's a bully? <laughs> no, she's not, actually. It turns out the weirdo guy who got evicted first still has a problem with it. That's what the headline should be. Weirdo guy who got evicted first from Bachelorette still he was a weirdo. But that's My n- favourite headline from today was, who is that super mild bottle? Um, uh, she was married to Seal. Heidi Klum. Yeah. And it was the headline, I think it was Heidi Klum, was the it headline was. was Heidi Klum entirely unrecognizable in Hollywood costume. Mm. That was on the front page of a paper, yep. like, oh, you know, online. I just went, that's 
hilarious. It's the least surprising headline ever. You're supposed to be unrecognisable in your Hollywood costume. The whole point of having a costume. Yeah, I know. Jesus. It's just <laughs> works of extreme ob- obviousness that are nonetheless newsworthy. We look at this idea of like you can see, hey, oh, a bunch of people clicked on this because we have this clickbait yeah. headline. But at the same time, what that doesn't take into context is the idea that you know readership is going down. And I wonder if this short-term gain, the fact that when I click on that thing and that story is not about that, it makes me less likely to trust newspapers, to trust media, sure. and then generally it's a gimmick. you don't consume. And it's the same thing with politics. Yes, you can you know, short-termism these things, but eventually, if you're just following the polls, you lose an overall sense of trust, not only in you, but also in the system itself. Well, because there's a kind of triple bottom line accounting going on here. Like, you know, politicians, particularly if they're already feeling a bit jumpy, will read a poll and think, oh shit, you know, what I'm doing isn't working. Quick change. But those polls don't ever pick up a deeper truth about the relationship between um, electors and leaders, which is, what is the point of having a democracy? We elect people to do things that we wouldn't be prepared to do ourselves, right? And sometimes that means doing difficult things, and sometimes it means um, having the courage to propose unpleasant truths or things that need to be done which nobody would like to do themselves you know and so that the element of um knowing that there's someone there who who will make a difficult decision is i think one of those really deep needs in politics that doesn't ever appear in opinion polls and for instance um if you have a look at all of the bullshit that's been talked about um climate and carbon pricing and stuff i mean if you had to pick an area apart from immigration policy that is more full of human weakness, frailty, um, 180-degree turns, panic, pole-driven paranoia, you know, those two are the areas, right? Um, And with climate, you know, um, when did Kevin Rudd's numbers go down? It's when he kind of having spent all of this time... um, convincing and uh, greatest moral out, challenge right, of our time to walk away from that you yeah. know was the point at which people just went well hang on i thought we were all you know i thought you were going to do this difficult thing you know um so it's tricky and look i still think that politics is um a a platform where transcendence is possible like i do think that advocacy is still possible um, I think that because the process is so um, equipped now with opportunities to take a little peek at how you're going, you know, it's not um, just throw everything you have at it and risk everything you have as a politician on this big thing that you want to do. It's full of nuance and feedback and, oh, my God, it doesn't seem to be working. It's not too late to change direction, you know. And in so... In, in, in being manoeuvrable in that way, in accordance with public opinion, I think that often political leaders actually erode their own authority to do difficult things. It's interesting to me. Um, I, we, I don't want to keep you forever, and I know you've been really busy doing press and stuff, And uh, uh, but I do. there's a couple of things I definitely want to talk to you about before we mm. uh, finish up, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, I read your book, uh, The Wife uh, Drought. Thank you. Uh, I re- very much enjoyed it. I thought it was a very interesting idea. I'd love for you to talk to me about the idea of being 
a a mother and being a wife and being a professional and you know all those things and and you know how you approach all those things was it ever i mean was parent was was okay well let me i guess which came first? Were you married first? Did you have a child first? Do you... Well, I'm not married. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, we've you, been yeah, together been forever. Together. Okay, um, cool. Uh, and we were together for, I don't know, like at least a decade before we had any kids. Yeah. And in fact, in the end, Jeremy was just like, well, come on, are we going to have children or not? Because So it was him, firstly, yeah, who was kind of... Because do you think that when you went into it, you thought, I will have... Children? Were you a person who like, had that in your mind? I think I probably thought I would down the track somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, I, I got this job that I really loved and I'm, you know, I I, I got right into it and I really um, enjoyed the work that I was doing. I started at the advertiser, I got transferred to Canberra pretty soon and then we worked, I worked in Canberra, Jeremy came over to I mean, technically lawyer. we're the same age, so you may have got that job that I went for. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I got the last spot. I got the last spot on the at, on the cadetship program as the cadetship counselor. Very I would, I would told love me on if, day one. I would love if it came back it and it was just down, spell down to the two of us. And apparently, I couldn't spell. Oh, his, his, Can name, you spell? his name only had one L in it. <laughs> See, I got full marks on the spelling test, and it was like they were really hard words as well. And so they thought that I might kind of have a future as a sub. Oh, man. Imagine if I pipped you by one just because I could spell seismograph or And something. then, like, the next year, spell check came along. Yeah, I know. The <laughs> made, world's most instantly skill redundant complete. skill. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, actually, I actually get – I get tripped up by spell check all the time and by fucking autocorrect. You know, oh, like, yeah. actually, on the night that that Scott Morrison episode went to air, yes. and I was like, you know, you have to be – you have to be around all the time now. So, like, you know, the episode goes to where and you've got to live tweet it. So, oh, you know, interesting. if there is a person who is, you know. Anyway. Do, do you have to? Because I have a completely different policy to that, which is the entire time that the program is on. Like, yeah. within those. So, basically, I'll plug, I'll go on the internet yeah. up until the time the show and is on. And just leave people And then I just leave that. Yeah. Good, well, good, bad, indifferent. Like, I actually yeah. walked into the office today and someone was like, hey, Mark Scott said some really nice things about who's the boss of the yeah, ABC. Did, Didn't say it. Yeah. But, well, actually, no. Um, the TV division asked if I would um, live tweet it. I mean, it seems a bit postmodern. You're kind of self-narrating your own you know, right. visit to somebody else's house, you know. But it's, I don't know, I'm happy to do it. And you do get a, a, a good sense of live reaction, which, you know, on that night was a lot of people calling me a baby murderer, um, which was, you know, uh, I thought OTT, but also I totally understand that um, people found that a confronting experience. But um, I mean, uh, I think if you have an opinion, this is the interesting thing about that is, like, I don't like, I I mean, I'm happy to say this because I, you know, like, I absolutely um, uh, have a problem with the way that we handle uh, asylum seekers in this country. And I do not think we are anywhere near what the best solution to that issue is. I understand it is a complex and imperfect Mm. thing, but I believe that what we're doing to innocent people who were just fleeing persecution in the name of keeping our borders secure. I, I do disagree with it. And I have mm. a real problem with Scott Morrison, mm. but I knew that. And I just didn't watch the show. Mm. Like I, cause I, in my head, I'm like, well, you know what? There'll be something in this that makes me like him more. And I <laughs> don't want that. I, I Because you know what? I'm fine without that. Cause I'm happy to hold on to all the shit I hate about him. You know, <laughs> I don't understand these people who are like, you know, I'm going to watch it and then I'm going to get mad at Annabelle that he triggers something in me. Well, the weird thing that happened while I was online, you know, live tweeting it is that I, on two occasions, said something about 
ScoMo. ScoMo says this. And do you know that when you put ScoMo into Twitter, I didn't notice this right away, it autocorrects to scum? Well, so yeah, I called him scum a bunch of times, which is the only thing that people seem to like. Responded you know, to about it. that is like, <laughs> well, it, funnily enough, when I tried to type your name into today oh, when I was sending you a message, I think it's like a babble, yeah, well, or some of the, a babble probably. Get some argument yeah. from a lot of them. <laughs> but <laughs> I think babble more than babble. But <laughs> so anyway, autocorrect. What a useful thing it is. Um, uh, so we were going. Where uh, were we? Look, I, I wanted to talk to you about the oh. motherhood, partnerhood, oh, right, yeah. so, all that that sort of stuff, so, and also the premise of the wife drought yeah. because it speaks to that as well. Yeah. So I am, um, I guess, typical of my generation in that I kind of went. Uh, you know, I, I started a job, love that got very into you know my my work, and you know, in at Parliament House um, when I was working there in newspapers in the press gallery, it's just like a you know, round-the-clock life, you know. It's an all-consuming. And it's a great, like, if you're interested in politics and if you're interested in journalism, it is this sort of quite demanding life. Oh, and it can be, like, I mean... 18-hour days, you know. And also it's one of those lives where, you know, and and I'm sure this is in a lot of industries, but... It's one of those ones that has a culture of the more you throw your into yourself into yeah. it, the more you're rewarded. Yeah, by yeah, it. that's true. You know, like so, you, you're kind of expected to then go out to dinner and drinking or continue like working on your like it's particularly when you're in Canberra because that city is set up for politics. Yeah. it becomes all encompassing, and you have your ears open all the time, I suppose, and you, everything that you see, even down to you know who do you see having a beer with whom, and you you sort of pick up a lot from those movements, I suppose. I mean, it's a weird town in that way, obviously. But um, uh, so I suppose, you know, I always thought that children would be something that I would do, you know, when I got a minute sort of thing. And I suppose that when I thought about having children, I always thought about the things that I would lose. Like I really, you know, I thought I love sleeping in. I really like, I really love sleeping in with a passion, you know, and I really like reading. I like lying down and reading for like hours and you know, it sounds ridiculous, but I sort of thought, oh, if I have a kid, then you can't do that stuff anymore. And I suppose, and that's right, by the way. Yeah. That is really That's, that pretty, seems absolutely that's right. That's pretty spot on. Feels like you had a pretty it's good pretty insight there. On. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't really allow for all the things that, would you replace know, that, that right, would be positive. Yeah. Or that, you know, you'd have to get up early in the morning, but, and that, that would be a drag, but then the, the compensatory thing was that you'd be getting up and going and picking up some person that's just like 100% happy to see you, just, hi, you know, and that's very, that's a very nice thing. So, um, so yeah, I had one child in London when we were still living there and then came back here and, uh, and had two more and um, the more children I had, the harder it became to kind of work in the way that I had been working, um, you know, as a sort of um, daily reporter kind of thing. Um, and newspapers are sort of hard to to juggle with kids because they have the same, you know, bedtimes as kids and they, you know, they get just as emotionally irrational at the end of the day as kids do, you know, demanding, right. weepy. An extra hour. Needy. An extra hour. Everyone shouting Tantrum at each ridden. other. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, oh. It's all about really... what I want and not what anybody else right. wants. All yeah. of that. All of that. God. So anyway, so I reckon like the way that I've kind of changed the way that I work has in a very large part being dictated by, you know, the sort of demands uh, um, of my family 
And um, that's actually been really good, you know. I've done different things that I probably wouldn't um, have done if I didn't have kids. Um, and I've got better at working faster and kind of packing stuff into every minute of the day. Like that becomes quite an important thing. And anyway, look, I wrote this book, The Wife Drought, because I saw women all around me doing that and and also being asked all the time, like particularly if they had really senior jobs, like, so how do you manage all this with, you know, how do you do it all? And people right. would say that, increasingly say that to me too. Um and it's weird because I don't hear people asking that of even like really busy guys with kids as well. Like there's just this assumption that they don't do that stuff, right. which I think is unfair a lot of the time. Um, and if not, why not is what I'm, I'm sort of asking in this book. You know, why do people have certain expectations of what you should be if you're a mother and different expectations of what you should be if you're a father? You know, the, the traditional kind of, I guess, feminist approach um, is – oh, well, you know, poor old women always getting shortchanged and, you know, having to struggle and undertake the juggle unaided and all that sort of thing. But I also think there's a flip side to that, which is why don't men have the same, you know, women kind of have children and generally assume that they'll do some part-time work or can they'll change the way that they work, you know, and quite often they can. Sometimes it's, you know, a total mess and that's not good either. But people don't assume that men will do that in the same way. And if you look at it one way, you can say, well, you know, those bloody lucky chaps getting away with, you know, not having to make changes to the way they work to accommodate these new responsibilities. But also I think they tend to miss out a bit too because they don't have the same... That was that was one of the things that uh, like I really responded to was that kind of premise of like, and I'd never quite thought of it in the same way because yeah. I've always thought I don't have kids, but if I'd always thought if I do have kids, I have a great job, like to have kids. Yeah. I could not travel as much; that'd yeah. be easily. But yeah. at the same time, also, you know, I'm financially in a position that if I wanted my kids to travel with me, you know, then I could you know, make that work. Yeah, right. And you know, mostly I work from home. Yeah. So you know, one of the great joys would be that I would actually get to raise my children but you while have I... actually without knowing it crafted a career around the potential for right. nurturing work and then I haven't had kids yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even like to sleep in you got pets <laughs> like I get up at like 5.30 in the morning you I'm wasting idiot. that time like where got... I could be yeah I have pets they still need to you know <laughs> Have but, you thought this out properly? No, but I, I, one of the things I loved was, and I think this is one of the things that's at the heart of this debate, because it comes up every time we hear this uh, in Parliament, you know, you hear somebody saying, you know, when we have a cabinet, it, when we have a population that is more women than it is men, where we have more women who are graduating university mm-hmm. than are men, mm. yet... You know, and look, uh, you know, these are statistics people quote a million times, but yeah. the percentage of CEOs, the percentage of women on boards, yeah. uh, the percentage of women in our cabinet, the fact that there's still only five or mm. what, five or six and people think that's great. Mm. Like, how can that be great? Well, Surely low base. it should be 50-50, some version of 50-50. Yeah. That's what it should be. And if it's not in this day and age, yeah. that means that the system, because they, they always come back to, well, we're promoting on merit, I know. which is fine. But if you're promoting on merit and this is the result you're getting, the system's wrong. Right. The system's broken. Which is what amuses me when we have this big argument about, you know, quotas and stuff and everyone's like, well, we'd hate to think that, you know, what, what I love my favourite argument against quotas is, 
But it's so unfair to the women. I mean, how unfair to the women who got promoted in that system. They'd just be sitting there thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm so unsure of myself. Did I get here on my merit or because I'm a woman? I'll, I'll never know. And I think – and that never strikes the 95% right. of – As they look down at the urinal. As 200 CEOs who are blokes and like, you know, wow. <laughs> wow, I'm a part of a group that's uh, a minority of graduates from university and yet a weirdly – comprehensive majority of people in decision-making positions just merit, of power. Man, it just, just kicks in later, funnier. the merit. Yeah, the, the merit, merit kicks in later. Oh, that lovely merit. Yeah, it's late-life merit, mate. <laughs> Round 30, your merit really kicks it's in. It's latent merit. But that's, mm. uh, that is the issue anyway, with that, that argument because the argument makes sense. If you say, oh, well, we want the best people, yeah, we're going to choose sure, on merit. Sure, Great. But, assuming but if you look at the world, like, yeah. if, you, uh, if you honestly believe yeah. that men and women are you know, equal or that, you know, in a general sense through the general population. You then know, there must be something wrong, right? Then, then there must be something, something wrong if this is right. the result. Yeah, okay. Actually, one of some of the really interesting things that some um, corporate leaders are doing now, and like there's, I actually think this, this debate about um, women in positions of power has come along, you know, there, there are people taking it seriously, not just as an equity question, but as a business question, which is a really interesting and I think long overdue way to look at it. Because there's an emerging body of um, research now demonstrating that companies that have better gender balance on their boards and in their senior management do better, right? This is where it starts to become of interest to, you know, people who are driven by a profit motive. You just, because right. you, you say not just, oh, well, Beryl from accounts is whinging again about how we don't have any women on the board. It becomes, what is this business missing out on um, by not using all of the expertise in our in our organisation properly? And for really big companies that have, you know, um, thousands of staff it, it becomes more of a direct concern than that it's like how is it that we're training up women to a certain level and then we throw all that expertise out the window by not promoting the same proportion of women as men and um when they start asking questions like that that are um really business management in um in um spirit rather than is it fair that there be women in equal proportion to men. It's not an equity argument, it's a business argument. And um, It's been demonstrably proved time after time that if we give people, like if we give women equal access to these things and if you have more women you know, working in the it is better for the economy. It's just a great business decision to be made. But the thing that I wanted to talk about was an insight in your book that I'm sure, I mean, that was the first time I had like really, you know, it provoked me in a way that I found really interesting. Mm. And um, with, and for, for me, what I got out of it, you know, I'm not going to mansplain what you were saying, <laughs> but what I got out of it yeah. was the idea, it clicked in my head when you said it was, I do think it comes down to us not valuing the role of, as you put in your book, the yeah. wife. Yeah. Because in a true sense, we yeah. still believe, if we honestly believe that that work was as important as the other kind of work, then... We'd have found a way to pay people for it. <laughs> right. Well, no, or we would just find a way where yeah. it was equally as, like, you know, uh, yeah. respected to be doing that work yeah. as it is to be doing, you know, to be on the board of your you know, company or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like those two. And men, it, it would give, and this is the bit, I guess, that I was like, was... I don't think enough men. I think men, more men would love to 
be more involved. Yeah. But I still think we have a system where it's shutting men out of that as well. The, the capacity well, I think we do to have a system that that discourages men subtly from doing that, whether right. it's at work or even and look, these are hard truths that need to be grappled with. It's not just a sort of men are evil, poor old women kind of thing. The truth is that. Men find it difficult too um, on occasion when they turn up to female-dominated groupings, like whether they're mothers' groups, which we still right. call mothers' groups, even though there are men in them, um, or school gates, you know, that those communities that are still heavily dominated by women. Um, I sometimes think that those guys have um, – it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but they have an analogous experience to, you know – women in the 70s who were turning up being the only w- woman in the room in a boardroom or something, you know. It's the same kind of it's a gendered environment that is not really designed for you to be there. Now, it's one thing to break down the barriers in workplaces that stop men, women getting into them, but I think a really absolutely unexplored but really important area, if any of us is going to kind of, you know, move on, is to break down the barriers that stop men getting out of work, you Mm. know, because if one thing has changed in the last 50 years or so, it's that women have like completely changed the way they work, you know, they have moved into the workforce, mainly into part-time work, that's where the big shifts are, Um, and they're, you know, adapting to running um, their careers and families, you know, at the same time. But for men, like the pattern hasn't changed that much on a grand scale, it's still tacitly viewed as, you know, the best thing you can do for your family is to have a full-time job and, you know, be away from them all the time. Um, and that's why I find that it, can't suit everyone. That's why I thought it was surely. the best, like, I mean, the, the insight that I responded to the most was this idea of, like, we, part of the way we get more women in is we encourage more men out. Yeah, well, it sounds brutal when you put it like, so let's step into this cupboard while I exchange, explain company policy to you, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I'm the CEO. And it's not that lucky. Look, I'm deeply suspicious of any model that that thinks that you can compel people to behave a certain way. People sometimes say to me, oh, look, what can the government do to correct this? And right. the truth is, look, all the government can do is put in intelligent social um, uh, um, not even incentives really like look at the way that you structure parental leave payments like does it presuppose that the person taking this will be a female what's the way you talk about you know um, domestic work and um, what are the assumptions that you make about who will be doing what job because if you look at our language and our expectations, they are still, even though we're a very modern society in some ways, um, very loaded with expectations and assumptions about who will be doing what. And you learn about that by seeing what surprises people, right? Also what they find funny too, because like an ad where a dad is changing a nappy is just incredibly funny because you at some level go, well, that's... uh, uh." (laughs) (laughs) Which is ridiculous really, right? Right. It's through comedy in that way or through surprise. See what people comment on at work. Like if a guy um, takes pe- uh, extended paternity leave to look after their kid while their wife goes back to work, how many people will say to that person, oh, you're being Mr. Mum or whatever, you know? You learn a lot about – Right, okay. That's it's not babysitting no. when it's your kid. Yeah, it's your kid. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're just being a parent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's a word for working mums, right? But there yeah. is – the guys are just guys. Yeah, they're not working dads. They don't dads. say I'm a working dad. They say, you say, yeah, anyway. Um, 
But it, but so, it is interesting. And and yeah. do you feel like we are genuinely making progress? I mean, despite all this, the fact that we're at least we're having these conversations, I think, is positive. But it's not just enough to have the conversations. Well, I'm There's having a lot be... more conversations about it. That's because I just wrote a seventy-five thousand word book about right. it. So people, so like, yeah, yeah, you're, I mean, you're hearing a I'm lot a, around the topic. I'm a little like bubble, it's all everyone's like, talking about. To be honest, <laughs> apart from the fact that I support child murder, it's not really the only <laughs> thing the that comes two. up. That's number I mean, yeah. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, see, this you know, this is actually. I'll make a, just a point in parentheses here, which has no resembl- no relevance to what we've just been discussing. But this is what fascinates me about this modern environment of social media and everything. Like it, it allows you to organise your whole universe with yourself at the centre of it. Absolutely. And you kind of assume that everyone's, to, you know, it's 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 an. I really feel sorry for um, you know, kids who are kind of dealing with how to be a human and how to relate to people when social media is the. Um, platform on which they're learning a lot of the time and it's a really unrealistic representation of the world. The world does not give a flying fuck about you most of the time. But and social media is both the best and the worst yeah. of the world and most of the world is somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, Somebody said to true. me like when I first started doing comedy they said just they said uh, don't ever like read you know like those sort of internet things. Yeah, they said yeah. because the only people who ever comment are the people who hate you yeah. or the people who love you yeah. and Neither of their opinions yeah. are really that like neither of them are right. Yeah. Because yeah. you are not a perfect person and you are not a perfectly terrible person. Yes, that's you are true. somewhere in between those things. And so, you know, absolute praise or absolute condemnation are probably never particularly helpful going forward. Yes, what you want is the genuinely disengaged. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just want someone who's familiar. There's no turn on, on like right. genuine we, lack of interest. We have gone uh, longer than You've I promised. Wind me up with a so I'm going to wind on. you up. No, no, no. I th- but I still have one more question because oh. I always like to ask this. Okay. What do you What do you think happens when we die? You have a lovely rest. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think we? Have, do you have a belief? Or do you have a like a spiritual really. belief? Are you a religious person in any way? Um. So I went to church when I grew up. When I was growing up, and I think. I do believe in a lot of the um, broader principles that I assume inspire people to organize themselves into religions, right? Which is, what is the point of all this? Mm -hmm. There must be an explanation or there must be a guiding principle to life, right? Uh Um, And when someone is dying near to you, that becomes an incredibly attractive proposition. Right. Because it's like extra time, right? You know, it's comforting to me to know that this person who I love who's dying is going on somewhere else to look over me with a fond smile or to, you know, watch my children grow up and all and that And even thing. if you I understand that. are smart enough to know that that's not true, do you think that that is... Like, I mean, maybe it is true, by the way. Next week, I'll do a little forward promote. Uh, next week, I'm talking to Jared McKenna, who is a oh. brilliant uh, a chaplain. Uh, he works, uh, yep. he does a great work with uh, refugees and asylum seekers in Australia and two-hour talk about, you know, religion and how much he believes in Jesus. Yep. So, yep. you know, I'm, I'm interested in what people believe. I don't believe I don't in any really of it, but do I do. Believe. I, I don't believe. I don't believe in an afterlife in that sense. Yes. But I think that the guiding principles, you know, the the very best parts of religion, which are about um, a sense of community, mm-hmm. which are about um, 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Like the golden rule. It's, a, yeah. it's in yeah. – the, the Christians but call it do being... unto others, but it's in every other religion in some form. But one of the things that religion I think does, and ignoring all the insane things that are done yeah. in the name of religion um, all over the place, is it sort of sets up a spiritual currency, you know. There is a reason to be good to somebody, mm. um, even when there's no other reason practically that in, that has an impact upon you. Why do I help this person? Why am I gentle to this person? Why do I give this person the benefit of the doubt? It's because suddenly I'm, I'm somehow I'm racking up golden coins in heaven. Well, I think that it's worth doing that stuff. Um, I don't think you get your reward in heaven. I tend to think you probably in a roundabout way get it on earth, you know, and it's the stuff that you do in your life that, that, um, that reaps that outcome, I think. But that's more interesting to me, which is that capacity to live like that. Because some people who, uh, like some, and this mm. is not all, of course, but some people who are religious say that if you are not religious, then they're like, well, where do your morals come from? You right. know, where, whereas I'm not religious right. at all, don't yeah. believe in all, but I try to treat people well and I try to respond to people, mm. you know, in a way that, I mean, a lot of people, I, I you know, p- put it this way. I, always, I used to have a joke. I was like, I don't think there is a God, mm. but if one day God rocked up and he was like, hi, I'm God, I'd You're be like, right. okay, g'day, g'day God. <laughs> and I reckon God and I'd be fine. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I'm sure he'd have some mm-hmm. issues, mm. you know, particularly with some teenage years and some stuff that he saw, but sure. uh, you know. But otherwise, I think that generally, you know, I, I kind of try to live, you know, what I would consider, you know, a life that would fit into that but do you that need, structure. But I don't need you don't the need idea the that there's going to be this visiting judgment kind of thing. No, I but mean, I, I, it's an organising principle, though. It's a hell of an organising principle, and I think kind of understand where the need for religion. Um, arose and how it was generated. Absolutely. But I wonder if sometimes just because we had a need for something, it doesn't always mean that that need will be there forever. Well, where it becomes Sometimes difficult. we evolve beyond needing that thing. Where it's these, like population. Where these, where these movements become difficult is where inclusion and exclusion then become relevant. Right. And I think this happens with feminism too, by the way. Um, we're going all over the place now. That's but, okay. But the it's idea, <laughs> you know, when you have a group of people who all, um, you know, associate either tightly or loosely with a with a foundation ideal, whether it's well, we believe in God and we meet on Sundays to talk about it and wear clean shoes, or it's um, well, we believe in the advancement of women and we are, you know, loosely identified as a group for that reason. I think all of that stuff is good. I think what where things start to go off piste is when you start using your membership of that group as an end in itself. You know, uh-huh. like, well, you can be a one of us because you're, you know, dressed the right way or you have sex with the right person, you know, but you, you're out. You know, we don't want you for these reasons. Like, I struggle with any social grouping or organizational grouping that is founded on inclusion and then finds its way towards excluding people. I think that's... Um, a flaw in human nature. That's a really nice uh, note to finish on, actually, Annabelle. Um, so uh, your show, Kitchen Cabinet, is on the ABC, 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Yes. Uh, ABC iView. If you can't watch it 8 o'clock on uh, Wednesday nights, then you can stick around and watch Gruen for two more weeks. Uh, and then hopefully maybe we'll see you on uh, Gruen Nation next year if, if you're available and we can yes, do and some the election Prime shows. Yes, Prime calls an election. Well, look, he said today we were having a little planning meeting. It's always hard to plan <laughs> like a show around a thing that, you know, you yeah. don't get any control over when it's on. And then today he said, look, it's probably going to be September, October next year. He's and just I was yanking like, your chain. It'll be March. That. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, where can people find you if they want to call you a baby murderer? Oh, look, but I would like them outlets. to say nice things to you after this podcast. <laughs> you are very kind. Thank you. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Annabelle. Um, and thank you for giving me extra time. I appreciate that. And uh, Oh, I, I'm going to do a little plug. Uh, I am on uh, all this week. Uh, if you want to hear someone who is not as uh, considered and not as uh, it won't be as nice to Scott Morrison uh, talk about politics, I am doing my political will show at Giant Dwarf, which is the Chasers Theatre here in Sydney, uh, Thursday through Saturday, the next two weekends. Uh, look, it's not like a, a Polish show, like my normal show, but if you want to see you know, 80 minutes of me ranting about Australian <laughs> politics and what I think, then uh, this is definitely the show for you. There's only about 50 tickets left for the entire season, so get in quick. That'd be cool. Uh, Annabelle, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Second.